This is Jeff Young, the Catholic Foodie at CatholicFoodie.com, and you're listening to episode 119 of the Catholic Foodie, The Help. Welcome, folks, to the Catholic Foodie, where food meets faith. I'm your host, Jeff Young, and today we're talking about The Help. Have you heard of it? It's a new movie that just came out last Wednesday, August 10th, and it is absolutely amazing. I took Char to see the movie the other night, and uh, I have to tell you, I cried like a baby. Uh, but but please, let's just keep that between me and you, okay? <laughs> You know, I want to tell you more about the help in this episode, and uh, we'll talk about food in the movie, too, particularly the fried chicken. Sarah Reinhardt returns to inspire us with her Mary in the Kitchen segment, and we'll talk about today's Marian Feast, the Assumption, all this, right here, the Catholic Foodie, where food meets faith. As we begin this episode, I want to thank our sponsor, DivineOffice.org, and I also want to congratulate the fine folks over there because just this past week they celebrated their fifth anniversary as a ministry. That is awesome. So congratulations to all the fine folks over at DivineOffice.org. Now, you know, you'll find all things Liturgy of the Hours at DivineOffice.org. Of course, the Liturgy of the Hours is the official prayer of the Church, and it is prayed several times a day by priests, religious, and laity all around the world. It is a treasure trove of grace and a rich education in prayer. If you've never prayed the Liturgy of the Hours, I, I do encourage you to do so. you got to give it a try. And uh, DivineOffice.org makes that very easy to do. Uh, you will find the hours available there in text format, also in audio. You can subscribe to the podcast version or download the iPhone or iPad app. And now there are apps for your Android and Nokia. There's even an app for your MacBook or your iMac. And I want to remind you of the new Bible app that is also available for your Apple desktop or laptop. It's available in the Mac App Store. You know, I'm currently using that Bible app to do research for my book project, and uh, it is making my job so easy. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it yet, you can find out more about it at divineoffice.org. So you got the Liturgy of the Hours. You have several elegant, feature-rich apps designed to help you grow in your faith, like the Prayer app, uh, and then also the Bible app. And, uh, you know, you're going to find all that over at divineoffice.org for sure. But the most important thing that you will find there is a living community of prayer. So come join us in prayer at divineoffice.org. Gumbo smells good, Tiana. I think it's going, Daddy. Yeah, are you sure? Mm-hmm. Absolutely positive. Yes. Okay, I'm about to put this spoon in my... Wait! <laughs> Done. Mm. What? Well, sweetheart, this is the best combo <laughs> I've ever tasted. <laughs> Come here. You do our little girl's got a gift. <laughs> I could have told you that. A gift this special just gotta be shared. Hey, everybody, I'm Ain't Gumbo. I got some hush puppies, Tiana. Here come. You know, the thing about good food, it brings folks together from all walks of life. It warms them right up and it puts little smiles on their faces. And, and when I open up my own restaurant, I tell you, people are gonna line up for miles around just to get a taste of my food. Food. <laughs> That's right, baby. Our food. Wow. <laughs> Man, uh, you know, that quote 
is one of my favorites, actually. It's, it's also from one of my favorite movies, Disney's The Princess and the Frog. I loved that movie. And you know why? Because it got it right. You know, so many movies have been made about the South, and so few get it right. And I'm talking about the culture, you know, the language, the food, the music, the joie de vivre, the joy of life down here. Uh, but Disney's The Princess and the Frog got it right. It's set in New Orleans, and I'm telling you, I recognize some of those places. And I can just about recognize some of those faces, too. I mean, the characters are so real. Uh, you know, but today we're not talking about The Princess and the Frog. No, sirree. We're talking about another movie set in the South, one that just hit theaters this past week, August 10th to be exact. I'm talking about The Help. If you have it, if you don't know anything about it, just sit tight. You're going to hear some uh, something about it in, in just a minute. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to play the trailer first. Let me pull that up for you. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> we didn't ever think you'd leave all Miss. It does take four years, Jolene. I got a job today, writing for the Jackson Journal. Great. You can write my obituary. Charlotte Phelan, dead. Her daughter, still single. Does this dress look homemade? I reckon when you finish it, won't. Thank you. She looked like the winning horse at the Kentucky Derby. I have drafted the Home Health Sanitation Initiative. The what? A bill that requires every white home to have a separate bathroom for the help. Maybe we should just build you a bathroom outside, Haley. Minnie? Hey, Abelene. Hey, Minnie. Mm-hmm. These women raise white children. We love them, and they love us, but they can't even use the toilets in our houses. Minnie, are you in there? You said to write about what disturbs me, particularly if it bothers no one else. I'd like to write something from the point of view of the help. I want to interview you. No maid is ever going to tell you the truth. That's a hell of a risk to take in Jackson, Mississippi. Courage isn't just about being brave. It's about overcoming fear and daring to do what is right for your fellow man. What changed your mind? God. And Miss Hilly Holbrook. I'm gonna help with your stories. We all are. Y'all brought me into this, but I'm gonna finish it. Have you lost your mind? No, ma'am, but you about to. It's quite scandalous. Sounds like Jackson, if you ask me. Abeling. Do I have plans for her? You are godless woman. We gone done in now. <laughs> I will definitely put a link in the show notes uh, to that trailer. But wow, I mean, what can I say about the help? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first of all, the movie is based on the novel by the same name, written by Catherine Stockitz. And, uh, you know, I mentioned at the start of the episode uh, that I cried like a baby in the movie, and I did. And, and I guess the question is why? You know, if you, if you don't really know anything about the movie, it's set in Jackson, Mississippi in 1963. And essentially, the movie tells the story of the black women who were hired as the help to take care of and raise white children. Now, on the surface, the movie obviously deals with race. And the author wanted very much to tell the story from the perspective of the help. 
And I think the reason this movie touched me so much is because I can relate to it. You see, you know, it, it was set in 1963, and I was born in 1970 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is not too far from Jackson, Mississippi. And I grew up with friends who had black nannies. Char had a nanny. Of course, I didn't meet her till much, much later. But as I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, I can remember attending parties where all the guests were white and all the help was black. It was just the way life was. Now, you know, I'm not saying that any of those maids were mistreated or uh, were purposely made to feel inferior or anything. You know, in my, in my recollection, many of the families genuinely loved and cared for those women who were very much a part of their daily lives. Yet, there was still a separation. You know, as I grew up, I began to learn what racism was. Um, I honestly could not understand it. I mean, I went to CCD as a child. I went to Mass. I remembered the stories from the Bible, you know, how Jesus said that unless we forgive our brother from our hearts, that the Father wouldn't forgive us either. You know, that, that, that's pretty scary. And that was one of the passages I recalled as a teenager when I came face to face with deep racism in my extended family. Now, I don't recall my parents ever making racist comments, but my grandparents, yeah, absolutely. My aunts and uncles, uh-huh. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable, so out of place when those kinds of things were said in my presence. It just, it didn't seem right, first of all, and it made me feel like I didn't even fit in with my extended family. Yeah, but now, as an adult, I can look back and see that what I thought was hatred in my extended family was really fear. And let me tell you, let me tell you just one example. You know, uh, one of my grandfathers was a sheriff's deputy, and he served in the 1960s at the height of racial tensions. Uh, matter of fact, he was on duty in downtown Baton Rouge in protective gear when the riots broke out. And as a deputy, of course, he knew what went on in the prisons and the jails. He knew what went on in certain parts of town. His experiences had shaped him, just like our experiences shape us, right? And uh, all my grandparents are now gone. Um, I, I, I still don't approve of the racism that they exhibited when I was growing up, but but I do now understand how they got that way. You know, those were really difficult times, and uh, society was just different. And tension was high, and that's what they grew up in. So I can, I can understand where they're coming from, even though I don't agree with it. Now, uh, you know, I think really that's what makes this movie so good. It makes it possible for us to leave our prejudices at the door to walk into the theater and watch a very human story, a story that can help us to put our personal experiences into perspective, maybe even make us rethink some of the conclusions we had previously drawn. You know, Char and I left the movie the other night, and we talked as we drove home, and what really amazed us was that this was not way back when. You know, I mean, even though the movie was set in 1963, there was enough of the same things going on in 1973 so that Char and I really could both recall similar situations, similar families. Uh, so this movie really hit home, and it told the story from the perspective of the help. It was deeply human. And, you know, there's certainly more that I could say, personal stories, you know, things that I've encountered in my life, but I, I don't think that's really necessary. What I, what I will say is this. Go see the movie. Uh, it's PG-13. I would not let my kids see it because there's thematic material in the movie that I just don't want my kids to see. But it is a great story, a great film. And uh, as we'll see in a moment, there was some good Southern cooking going on in that movie, too. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that 
in just a minute. But what I will say too about this movie is that um, it, it dealt with um, very difficult situations, but in such a way that uh, that that you could almost laugh at yourself, you know, uh, and see how the characters almost could could laugh at themselves. It was really a very funny movie on top of being very serious. It's a, it's hard to do that. I mean that 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 requires some sort of magic, I'm sure. This is me. I think it's apparent that I need to rethink my life a little bit. I can't help myself. I, I like good food, okay? And good food is, is hard for a rat to find. It wouldn't be so hard to find if you weren't so picky. I don't want to eat garbage, Dad. <laughs> what is that? I don't really know. You don't know, hmm. and you're eating it. You know, if you can sort of muscle your way past the gag reflex, all kinds of food possibilities open up. This is what I'm talking about. I don't think any of this would have come up, but we happen to live in Paris, France, and it's so easy to find good food in Paris. It's just dangerous. <laughs> Gotta rethink your life. He's right, you know. Let it go, Dad. <laughs> you know, I can smell it now. And and I could smell it then too. You know, Char and I were sitting in the theater watching the help. It was a scene with Minnie. And she was in the kitchen cooking. You know, there it was. I mean, as soon as she stepped to the side, I could see what was on the stove, a black cast iron skillet, and inside was chicken. And it was frying. Wow. I mean, the smell hit me, and all of a sudden I was seven years old again. Uh, jumping up and down in the kitchen, begging my mama to hurry up. You know, that chicken smelled so good. And it's funny, you know, how smells and memories are linked, huh? But I love homemade fried chicken. Oh, my goodness. And the chicken in mini skillet looks so good. <laughs> you know, another thing that they showed in the movie, though it really happens off camera. You know, you get a sense of what's going on, but it, you don't actually see this happen, is uh, well, they, they kill the chicken before bringing it inside to cook. And that reminded me, too. It reminded me so much about my time in the seminary in Mexico. If, if you remember, I, w I left home when I was 18 and entered formation with Mother Teresa's priests in Mexico, and we lived among the poor. Now, I might have been in Mexico for only a week or two when I saw my first chicken killed. It was another seminarian and I. Uh, we were together. We were visiting a family, well, several families, but we had got this one family in the area. And Mercedes was the name of the mother. And uh, over the next two years, I would really become good friends with, with them, you know, and grow to love them as friends. Uh, but that day, I guess what we could call Chicken Day, <laughs> was the first time I had met Mercedes, Arturo, and their children. And uh, it was quite a day. You know, I was fresh in Mexico. I was still getting used to the poverty, the dirt, the flies, and the stench. I mean, everything was dirty. Uh, dirt and dust was everywhere. I mean, you know, I'm from Louisiana. Water's everywhere here, right? And so we have plants and grass and trees, and sometimes it's hard to find dirt. I mean, we can find lots of mud, but dirt, not not always. Uh, but where I was in Mexico, which was a, a very poor area, uh, it was hot and dry and dusty, and there were flies everywhere. I mean, I remember sitting there outside their house, which was really more like a shack or a clubhouse that you and I would build as kids, right? I sat there, and I kept shooing uh, flies off of me every time they landed. And after a while, I realized that I was the only one shooing them away. No one else seemed to notice when the flies landed on them. And uh, I then kind of forced myself not to shoo them away. 
I didn't want to offend anyone. And during the course of the conversation, which was very one-sided, mind you, since I could not speak a word of Spanish, Mercedes got up, grabbed one of the chickens by the neck that was run around the yard, swung it over her head, and wrung that chicken's neck, <laughs> literally. I was stunned, but not as stunned as I was about to be, because she, she then slapped it down on a board, pulled a butcher's knife out of thin air, and decapitated that chicken. And you know what? It hopped up and started running around like a chicken with its head cut off. <laughs> Literally. I mean, it did. Blood spurting out of its headless neck. I was motionless and speechless in both English and Spanish. I couldn't say a word. And I was really stunned. You know, up to that point, I only knew that chicken came from a grocery store and it came wrapped in plastic on a styrofoam platter. In my mind, I had never associated the chicken I ate with that feathery thing that runs around in people's yards and lays eggs. I mean, this really blew my mind. Now, once the, the chicken finally keeled over, <laughs> Mercedes grabbed it, hung it on the clothesline by its feet to let the blood drain out. And I don't know how long that chicken hung there. I mean, it, it could have been an eternity. I was transfixed by that lifeless, bloody thing hanging there, and I, I hardly noticed anything else in creation. But I did happen to notice that nobody else seemed to even notice the decapitated chicken five feet away from me. They were used to it. I think I was in shock. <laughs> uh, it was just so much reality for one afternoon. Uh, I, was, I was really kind of disgusted and fascinated all at the same time. And after a while, Mercedes took the chicken down and, and started dunking it in a big metal tub of warm water. Not hot water, but warm water. And I was told later that she was doing that to soften up the feathers in the skin so that she could more easily pluck the chicken. And pluck the chicken she did. I mean, she just ripped those feathers out right there while talking to us. I mean, it was like it was no big deal. You know, I mean, like that, she didn't even notice what she was doing to that bird. I mean, truthfully, she really did notice because it was just second nature. It's just what you, that's just how you do it, right? And once the chicken was naked... <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, I don't even remember what happened next. I, I have no idea. I, I think I was just too overwhelmed. I mean, she she may have gone after it again with her knife and carved it up, or, or she may have cooked it whole. I honestly can't remember. I wish I could, uh, but I think my brain probably just started to shut down. I, I, I must have been in shock or something. But anyway, all of that kind of came back to me when I saw Minnie wring that chicken's neck in the movie The Help and then prep it for frying in that beautiful black skillet. Mmm, them just some good eats, folks. Wow, something smells good. Those, uh, goodies in there. Granny, Granny Puckett, the goody lady? My goodness, she makes some good... Goodies. She's got a thing. It's like a, uh, it's like a uh, cookies, shortbread chocolate icing between. Very. It's good. Uh, it's very good. Well, I have to tell you that we love chicken in our house. You know, I, I don't have them a run around my yard or anything. But uh, at this point in my life, I kind of wish I did. <laughs> uh, you know, but we cook chickens all the time. And a few years ago, we made the switch to free-range chickens. Uh, antibiotic-free chickens. And I remember the first time that I ate a free-range chicken. I was amazed by it. It felt and tasted so different than the Tyson chicken that we bought at the grocery. It was just so much more flavor. And uh, you know, I have to say, once we tried it, we were hooked. So 
So I'd like to share with you a very simple way to prepare whole chickens. Uh, we cook chicken this way in our house at least once a week, sometimes twice. And uh, yeah, now we're a family of five, so I usually do two birds at once. And uh, we always have leftovers, but that's a really good thing, as, as you will see. You know, we have two vertical roasters. Those are little uh, metal upright roasting stands. And boy, do I love those. Man, and we use them so much. It's just, it's amazing. They, they help so well when it comes to roasting chickens. Uh, you know, so what I do is I take the whole chickens and I place them on a working surface, someplace where I, I don't have to worry about them getting, um, uh, like, like the spices and seasonings that I put on the chickens. I, it's, some of it's going to fall off or bounce off or whatever. I don't want that to get all over the place. So I usually put it on some sort of a, uh, not a cutting board, like a, a wooden one, but maybe like a plastic. I have a plastic cutting board. It's easy to clean. I'll use something like that. And that's where I season the chickens. Now, you don't, if you remember, some, I've, I've talked about this a, 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 way, a ways back uh, on a previous episode. We have this mentality, a lot of us, that we have to wash the chickens before we season them. But in, in actuality, you don't have to do that unless uh, you feel it's absolutely necessary. And sometimes if the chicken is not as fresh, it may have a little smell to it. Not that it's going bad, but it may help just to wash it off and freshen it up a little bit. But for the most part, if it's a fresh chicken, you don't have to wash it because any, any kind of bacteria that's on that chicken is going to die when it's cooked. And uh, if you do wash it off, all you're doing is contaminating your sink. So it's not necessary, but really it's just up to you. I stopped washing my chickens uh, about a year or so ago after I um, I uh, learned that little trick. So anyway, what I do is I'll, I'll put them on these working surfaces, and I use, uh, I use Conrico, which is a Creole seasoning mix. Now, the same effect could be had with kosher salt, ground black pepper, and cayenne, and maybe even a little granulated garlic. And I also use this Greek seasoning that we get from the Greek Fest every year. It's basically just dried oregano, red pepper flakes, rosemary, and uh, it may even have some uh, dried basil in there. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But I stick the chicken in uh, one big pan, both chickens in one big pan, uh, uh, sitting, sitting on the vertical roasters, right? So they're standing up or sitting up on the vertical roasters. I stick them in the oven that has been preheated to about 400 degrees. And after 20 minutes, I turn the temp down to 350, and I just let them roast for another 40 minutes. And that's it. I mean, it's just so simple. Uh, two chickens in the oven and, and, and cooking in less than 10 minutes, as far as the prep goes, less than 10 minutes. And... Um, they're just, they're just so delicious. They are just so delicious. You know, but the fun doesn't end there. Uh, mommy and Daddy, that's me and Mom, me and Char, you know, we get the wings. That's our favorite part. And despite the kids always begging for them, we say, well, when you grow up, you get the wings, okay? But for us, that's, that's, that's our little treat now. <laughs> but here's the thing. We keep all the bones. So once the kids are finished gnawing on the bones, they know not to throw them away. They go into a special container that we will then put into the fridge or the freezer, depending on when we want to make stock. If it's going to be the next day, then uh, we'll just stick them in the fridge. You know, that's right. We take those bones, we save everything, even the ones we've been gnawing on, we save them and use them to make stock. Now, just a couple of episodes back, I did talk about soups and, and making stock, and this is what happens. This is where we get our bones from, and uh, it's the best stock you'll ever have. I mean, there's this fresh stock made from those bones, just absolutely delicious. You know, and it can be used for so many things, soups and gumbos and all of that. And so what happens is if we have chicken left over the first night, I'll pull all the meat off the bones and reserve it, throw all the bones in one container, make stock the next day, and then use that meat and the stock to make a soup of some sort. And uh, you talk about good. And it's economical too. So we get 
everything we can out of them little yard birds, you know? So, <laughs> so Mercedes, gracias for opening my eyes to where chickens really come from. <laughs> and thanks for befriending me for those two years in Mexico. Buen provecho. Hi, I'm Beauty. And I'm Ray. And this is Mary in the Kitchen with Sarah Reinhardt. <laughs> I have an office, a room with my desk, and a window with a very nice view of my backyard. It's filled with a lot of unpacked stuff and pictures that need hung and placed around our new house. But I think that's only part of the reason that I find myself dragging papers and books and work out to the kitchen table. The truth of the matter is that no matter what I call that room with my desk, it's not really my office. My kitchen is my office. For one thing, there's my kitchen table, which we've only had a few months. Our old kitchen table, which I was all romantically attached to, wouldn't fit in our new house, so it's awaiting its repurposing. The new table, though, still has so much appeal for me. The kitchen is in the center of my home, in part because of how it's arranged with the floor plan, and in part because of how we live. Though my kids can now play in their rooms, and they do quite happily, there's a togetherness to being all in the more public spaces of the kitchen and adjoining family room. Then there's that matter of needing to eat. I shake my head sometimes because it seems like I no sooner feed them than they're asking for something else. But in truth, I'm the same way. It starts in the morning with my coffee and devotions and continues as I work through the day with sandwiches and goods from the garden and, well, there's chocolate in there too, and so much more. I have lots of reminders of Mary in my kitchen. There's the olive wood bust that a dear priest friend gave me one year for Christmas. There's the statue of Our Lady of Grace who looks down on me from a high shelf her hands extended down and waiting to hug me when I need it or boost me up on a low day. There's the nativity set that I can't bring myself to put away and the Holy Family statue tucked in a different corner. Mary must have spent a great deal of time in her kitchen. And when we share a glance as the kids thunder through, tackle a few toy horses, or dig into the laundry baskets, I can't help but think of the reasons my kitchen is so important. The true inspiration for my work is the people in my life. Whether they're visiting me for a day or in my care for a few more years, they are the gift that God has given me by way of my vocation. It is in pausing to appreciate them, sometimes with salami in one hand and mustard in the other, that I see Mary beside me. She's in my kitchen, I think, more than in any other part of my home. And in finding her there, I find the better part of myself. May you find her in your kitchen, too, and be inspired to embrace the call of your vocation, whatever it is. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's Sarah Reinhardt, folks, with her Mary in the Kitchen segment. We're so lucky to have Sarah on the show here with us. And you can find more of Sarah and links to her work elsewhere, including her new book, at snoringscholar.com. Also, a special thanks to Langelous for letting us use their Ave Maria in the show. Wanting 
This is Archbishop Joseph Nauman of the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, and I look forward to welcoming you here in Kansas City for the Catholic New Media Conference on October the 1st, 2011. Join us October 1st for the fourth annual Catholic New Media Conference. The CNMC is a festive, educational, and international conference focused on evangelization and building community through the use of new media. This year's CNMC will focus particularly on social media and how the church and its institutions can effectively use it. Beginning with hands-on workshops on Friday, September 30th, and continuing with the main program on Saturday with Vatican Radio's Sean Patrick Lovett, the nun blogger Sister Ann Flanagan, Catholic mom Lisa Hendy, and popular Catholic bloggers and podcasters, it'll be a weekend to remember. Details are available at cnmc.sqpn.com. Make sure you're going to Kansas City for the CNMC. You know, today the church celebrates the solemnity of the Assumption of Mary, which commemorates that Mary, at the end of her life, was taken up to heaven, body and soul. And by a special privilege, she did not know death. Now, you want to talk about the true help, right? The true help is Mary. She is the mama who is taking care of everybody else's children. <laughs> Actually, she's taking care of God's children, and she's very much concerned that all of God's children go to heaven. So I admit, I was thinking about Our Lady while I was watching the help. God is good. <laughs> Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So just a couple of quick announcements here before we close out the show. First of all, I was so excited the other day to receive a text from my friend Sarah Vabulous, also known as the Catholic Drinky over at CatholicDrinky.com. Uh, she texted me to tell me that the two of us were mentioned on the Smithsonian Magazine's blog. Wow, that is really awesome. Uh, Lisa Brahman wrote an article about grilling and saints. Of course, St. Lawrence figured into that article. <laughs> but I was very much impressed that uh, Lisa Brahman referenced the Catholic foodie. She linked to an article I wrote last year for the Feast of St. Martha. So make sure you check that out. That article is over on the Smithsonian's blog and uh, there will be a link in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com. Uh, secondly, I want to let you know that I am redesigning catholicfoodie.com. It's not ready yet, but if you want to take a sneak peek, you can go to the uh, the new site over at new.catholicfoodie.com. I hope to have all the old material moved over to the new platform by next week. It's been a slow and painful process uh, as I'm migrating three years' worth of content from Drupal to WordPress. I'm very much looking forward to launching the new site soon for many reasons, one of which uh, is that it will make the Catholic Foodie Book Project much more easy to manage. Uh, that's right, you heard me correctly, the Catholic Foodie Book Project is finally happening. I uh, hope to be able to give you the scoop in the next few weeks, uh, but until then, pray, please. It's very exciting. Also, if you have feedback for the Catholic Foodie, particularly if you want to share with me how food meets faith in your life, please do give me a call on the voice feedback line, 985-635-4974, 985-635-4974, or send me an email at jeff at catholicfoodie.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, bon appétit.
SQPN, leading the way in Catholic new media.